Considering that it was the day of the biggest premiere in the history of the entertainment industry, Hollywood was unusually quiet. It was Tuesday, September 17th, 2013. Look all you want, but nowhere in Hollywood would you find rope lines or red carpets. There were no lavish after parties, no borrowed diamonds or ice sculptures, and no reporters asking anyone, who are you wearing? Instead, the action could be found at the strip malls around the world, where groups of people stood outside, waiting patiently in the dark. What they were waiting for was the clock to strike midnight, because at midnight, something unprecedented was about to happen. The hot property making its world debut that day wasn't a motion picture. It was a video game. That was the day Grand Theft Auto V was released on Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. And nothing would tell the story of its success better than the numbers. That version of Grand Theft Auto, or GTA, sold 11.2 million units in just 24 hours. It would gross a billion dollars in just three days. By comparison, that's about four times the opening weekend gross of the movie Star Wars Rogue One. Within a year, GTA boasted more than 33 million online players worldwide. That's more than the populations of Austria, Ireland, Greece, and Sweden combined. For developer Rockstar Games, it was a lot of money. But it wasn't easy money. Grand Theft Auto V took many painstaking years to put together, with a development budget reported to be more than a quarter billion dollars. But how did we get here? How did the home video game market come to not only disrupt the entertainment business as we know it, but also change the way an entire generation spends its leisure time? We're about to find out. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast by Dell Technologies. Our creative powers are being stretched. Gee, Ma, we want to finish the game! The computer signals the action when it's ready. Today we're going to play an exciting new game. On today's episode of Trailblazers, we're looking at the world of video games. Sit down in front of any modern video game console and it's pretty easy to get sucked into the immersive experiences that they create. Between the jaw-dropping graphics mixed with addictive gameplay, it's easy to see how video games have come to disrupt and in some cases displace traditional forms of entertainment. But in order to understand how we got to where we are, we have to jump back in time a few decades to the summer of 1972, when the phone rang in my friend Al Alcorn's office. It was a call Al Alcorn didn't care to take. It was from Andy Capp's Tavern in Sunnyvale, California. The new arcade game machine that Alcorn had recently installed there wasn't working. 
This was no ordinary game. It was Pong, a game similar to ping pong, where a blip on the screen gets bounced back and forth by two paddle-like lines. It was born from an idea borrowed, or inspired, by a Magnavox console game spotted at a trade show by Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. By today's standards, it's something that looks incredibly primitive. And as Bushnell explains, the success of Pong was not something he saw coming. I actually didn't think of it as a, as a viable product. As serendipity would have it, that same day, my first engineer, Al Alcorn, came on, and I wanted him to have a learning project that wasn't very complex. We had a contract to build a driving game from Bally, and it was going to be quite a complex thing, and I wanted him to get his feet wet, and so I described the Pong game to him and said he had to get it done in a week, and, uh, and he did. Arriving at the tavern later that day, it didn't take Alcorn long to discover the problem. The Pog machine was so clogged with quarters, it broke. It was the first sign that Atari was onto something. A normal arcade machine might take in $10 a day, but the Pong machine made 40. Soon, millions of people would be introduced to video gaming through Pong, first with the arcade version, and soon after, through Atari's home console. Bushnell quickly grasped the key to its breakthrough success. Pong worked because it was amazingly simple. No rules, really, and uh, people could figure out how to do it almost immediately. Stephen L. Kent is the author of the ultimate history of video games. You know what the instruction set for Pong was? The instruction set for Pong was avoid missing ball for high score. Pong gave birth to the era of the video game, and Nolan K. Bushnell was its midwife. Not only was he able to create a game that was incredibly addictive, but he was also able to tap into a social idea that was right for the times. What made it a hyper-success is that it was just at the, at the point where there was a lot of talk about women's liberation and, and things like that. And the average woman could beat the average man playing Pong because of small muscle coordination. And it was uh, enlightening because if a woman wanted to play Pong, it was a two-player game, it became acceptable for her to ask some burly guy off of a bar stool to come over and play Pong with her. Not only did Pong level the playing field between competitors, but it also helped introduce the world to a new concept, one that would forever change the way we interact with each other. It demystified the concept of a computer, something few people had experienced this side of a Star Trek episode. I've always said that video games were the training wheels of computer literacy. Before the, the video game, people didn't know that you could do things on a screen. I mean, numbers of people ask me with Pong, how does, how does the TV station know I've turned this knob? You know, it was just this mindset. And 
It turns out that 100% of, of software programmers that I've ever met have all been game players and uh, as kids. And I think that you learn logical functions, you learn cause and effect. And I do believe that whether we call it uh, training wheels or gateway drug, I think that video games have always been very, very powerful. Bushnell had earned his electrical engineering degree at the University of Utah while working during his spare time at the Lagoon Amusement Park, giving him just the right combination of skill sets to launch his disruptive technology on the world. Stephen Kent. The timing was perfect. Nolan, in his mind, in, his, in this great creative, energetic mind of Nolan Bushnell, um, he had, who had worked in a carnival midway, he knew what attracted people to the games on the midway, and he tried to employ that into his games. It was this perfect convergence. Strange as it seems in hindsight, when Bushnell sought to take Pong into production, investors were hard to find. One reason was context. In many people's mind, Pong was an arcade game in the tradition of pinball. And for generations of older Americans, pinball was looked down upon as a completely useless pastime. Nolan Bushnell, however, disagreed. He understood the commercial attraction of an arcade-induced dopamine rush. He also understood that to bring video games to the masses, it would be impossible to make his millions just 25 cents at a time. He had to get games out of the arcades and beer parlors and into American homes. Bushnell's idea? The Atari home console, an idea that initially fell completely flat. We took it to the toy show and we sold zero. And we said, whoa, what's, what's going on? It turned out that, that there was an unwritten rule in the toy business that they wouldn't sell anything over $29. And we were asking 79 And it wasn't until we found Sears Sporting Goods who said, yeah, we, we can sell this. And actually, the buyer flew out the next week and took 100% of our production. In a deal with Sears, Atari introduced the home console version of Pong in 1975. Then a couple of years later, with the introduction of their first cartridge system, an entire market was created. And video games had come home. Atari became the flagship brand in the home computer game revolution. With hit after hit, Asteroids, Tank, Lunar Lander, Battlezone, and Missile Command, it seemed like Atari was unstoppable. Nolan Bushnell was not only rewriting the rules about how we played, but he was also rewriting the rules about how we worked with the new culture that he fostered at Atari. It was a culture that we tried to get rid of class distinctions as much as possible. For example, we didn't have reserved parking spaces for the executives. We didn't have an executive dining room. And we kind of said, you know, we're all in this company together. We have different roles. And yeah, some of us get paid a little different because we went to school longer. But in general, we're, we're all here elbow to elbow trying to make something wonderful. And, and I think that that 
was really appreciated. We were the first company to give stock options to every employee in the company, um, which the VCs, when they later on, when they came in, thought was scandalous. In time, though, Atari became the first major casualty of one of the emerging realities of the video game business, the gamer's growing appetite for new, unexpected experiences. Maybe Atari saw its challengers coming, but it probably didn't guess how soon it would be upended by two plumbers and a hedgehog. In 1889, Fusajiro Yamauchi of Kyoto, Japan, founded a company to sell playing cards. The name he chose was Nintendo, from words meaning, leave luck to heaven. Fast forward to the 1960s. Nintendo, now run by grandson Hiroshi Yamauchi, hit it big by striking a deal to portray popular Disney characters on its playing cards. Tegan Jones is the co-host of the gaming lifestyle podcast, Sass Effect. That really saved the company and they were hugely popular and the company went public in 1962. That really resulted in a lot of new capital. So Nintendo ended up making some interesting business acquisitions at that time. A taxi company, an instant rice company, vacuum cleaners short-stay hotels, which was an interesting choice, and toys as well. And yes, you did hear that correctly. Nintendo, for a time, ran a by-the-hour hotel chain. When the fledgling video game industry emerged, Nintendo found its niche. In 1975, they also thought that it might be a good idea to start producing their own games. So the first one was EVR Race, which is something not many people have heard of. But in the same year, they also released just a small game uh, called Donkey Kong, which was created by the Nintendo giant Shigeru Miyamoto, who became one of you know the, the biggest rock stars of gaming. And originally, it was actually released on the Atari 2600 in television and the ColecoVision and in arcades, so this was before there even was a Nintendo video game console. Then, in 1983, mayhem. New games rained down on the market as third-party publishers rushed to exploit the new video gaming trend. New consoles were introduced from the likes of Mattel, Coleco, and Tandy. Buyers, wary of committing to any one console, committed to none. Prices dropped to pennies on the dollar. As speed to market overtook quality, the video game industry collapsed. The industry, once worth billions in annual revenue, now embodied the Yogi Berra-ism. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. For the playing card company from Kyoto, the stage was set. The rise of Nintendo gaming is a story in at least three acts yielding lessons that resonate throughout the industry today. One of those acts began in the early 1980s on a bullet train zipping across Japan. One of the nameless salarymen riding the train that day was a gentleman playing with the images on his pocket calculator. That fascinated a fellow passenger by the name of Gunpei Yukoi. In the universe of portable gaming systems, it was the birth 
of a movement. Yokoi saw potential for a compact, go-anywhere game system using the same liquid crystal display technologies used in pocket calculators. His idea evolved, first as the Game & Watch system, then as the Nintendo Game Boy. The lesson? Sometimes the best inspiration is observing other people. Another act was the introduction of a new console. But Nintendo was mindful of lessons learned from the industry's mid-'80s collapse. Tegan Jones. In 1985, two years after the crash, they released the Nintendo Entertainment System, known as the NES. And it was a huge hit. And they prevented the market crashing for them by making sure that they limited the third-party games each year. So their market for their console couldn't be flooded. They were in control of the amount of titles that would come out. So there wouldn't be people getting sick or tired of the games that they had. And Act 3 the creation of a cultural ecosystem featuring family-friendly characters, Donkey Kong, Mario, Luigi, and a surfeit of supporting characters. With Disney-worthy discipline, Nintendo would tightly govern the look, the music, and the feel of its games. That consistency would warm users to each subsequent game or platform. And in all things, Nintendo showed a stubborn disregard for what its competitors were up to. Nintendo's creativity, consistency, and familiarity paid off. Through the late 80s, its rise to dominance coincided with the post-crash resurgence in video gaming. By some estimates, in 1990, Nintendo enjoyed a 95% share of the video game market. In a business governed by the phrase, what's next, they must have known it wouldn't last. The console wars were about to begin. The rise of Sega began halfway across the Pacific on a beach in Maui. Author Blake Harris explains. It's 1990, and Tom Kalinske is on vacation with his wife and his three daughters, and he's kind of at a crossroads in his life. He had been essentially pushed out of his previous job due to political infighting and didn't really know what was next and certainly felt like maybe the best years were behind him. And then he's approached on the beach by a small Japanese man named Hayao Nakayama, who is the head of Sega of Japan, a pretty brilliant dictatorial businessman with the world's most wonderful comb-over. And he says, Tom, I've been looking for you. And Tom, you know, caught off guard in his vacation, says, you know, why would you be looking for me? And, and Mr. Nakayama-san says, Tom, I want you to come run Sega and take on Nintendo. By this point in his career, Tom Kalinske had already held positions as the CEO of Mattel as well as the CEO of Matchbox, and was taking a moment to figure out his next move. And as Kalinske himself recalls, when he was approached on the beach to run the American arm of Sega, he was reluctant. And I thought, well, this is crazy. Why should I interrupt my vacation and go, go to Japan with this guy? And my daughter, who was about five at the time, piped up and said, well, Daddy, he says it's important that you go, so I think you better do it. And so he did. 
Nakayama gave Kalinsky free reign of Sega's U.S. arm. The first thing he knew he had to do was change the culture of a company that had started to identify itself as weak. Inside the company, I would say that morale was low. They had been beaten up a lot by, by Sega Japan and by their competition, Nintendo, and they weren't successful. So we had to come in and change that uh, culture and bring in new and different people. Uh, one of the things I did was I started bringing uh, females into the company, which was unheard of in those days in the video game industry. Um, and I think that helped us quite a bit. They became uh, senior executives and, and performed extremely well. Anyway, a lot of changes had to be made, and we had to also uh, have a strategy that Japan would let us do. That Japan, Nakayama-san, when he hired me, said, I'm going to let you make the decisions in the United States. But that wasn't so easy uh, at that time. Kalinsky's next job turned his newfound enthusiasm into a strategy that he could pitch to the Sega execs in Japan. Blake Harris. He went to Japan to deliver what he called his four-point plan. And this was kind of his, I've been studying the industry for a few months. I'm still an outsider to it. But here's kind of my observations on the ways that I think that we at Sega have a chance to get our foot in the door. And his strategy entailed things like dropping the price, giving away the company's best game for free, which was unheard of, and which turned out to be Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, bundling that game with the system to basically create more games unlike Nintendo games by making sports games and licensed games like that, you know, to basically go after older markets, to go after college kids and adults because they, Sega basically conceded to Nintendo, you know, you own the market from age 6 to 14, you own the kids, so we're going to try to get everybody else. Kalinsky presented his plan to executives of Sega Japan. It did not go well. Well, you can imagine when I said all these things into this room of board members and senior management in Japan, most of whom didn't speak English, they started talking in Japan and they were very upset with me. My key ally, a fellow named Toyota Shinobu, was translating as fast as he could for me and he said, well, Tom, basically they think you're crazy and they don't agree with anything you said. If you lower the price of hardware, we will make less profit. If you put in our lead software into the hardware pack, we'll lose the profitability from that software sale. If you can't take Nintendo on, they're much too powerful. They're much bigger than we are. That's just a crazy idea. They can't imagine why you'd want to do that. And they don't believe you can get college males to play video games because they're too busy studying. And at that point, uh, Nakayama-san got up and started walking to the door and, and he kicked over a chair. You could tell he was very upset. And I could tell he didn't agree with what I was saying. But he turned and he looked at me and he said, Okay, I don't agree with what you're saying, and neither does anybody in this room, but I told you you could make the decisions for the Western world when we hired you, so go ahead and implement your plan. And they provided the funding for me to do all of those things that I had suggested. Kalinsky went to work. Sega U.S. launched an aggressive ad campaign, positioning Sega as an edgy brand for older players, and Nintendo as a mere child's toy. For Kalinsky, that differentiation was vital. Well, to me, if, if anybody can do what you're doing, you don't really have a strategy. I mean, they'll soon, particularly if they have more money than you do, if they can implement your strategy better than you can or with more money behind it than you have, obviously they're going to be more successful and you're going to fail. So that, that's why, I, you know, throughout my life, I'm Sega, we... 
we went after this older age group because others weren't going to be able to copy us, and we, we were going to have a free reign for some number of years at least. And that's exactly what's happened. The launch of the Sega Genesis system featured the line, Genesis does, but Nintendo don't. Ad after ad pounded Nintendo, many of them prompting demands that they cease and desist, most of which Kalinske ignored. There was a couple cases where our lawyers said, well, they've got a good point here. Maybe we better cool that one down a little bit. That specific one that I recall was on our, actually on our Game Gear color handheld unit. You know, we had a color LCD screen, and if you recall, Game Boy was black and white or green and white or gray and white. And the ad we used had an Airedale, and we talked about how dogs are colorblind, and if you don't mind uh, not being able to see color, then maybe you should play with a Game Boy. And we showed the dog drinking out of the toilet at the end. Well, this, for some reason, upset Nintendo greatly. And they sent a letter saying that this was something that we had to stop doing. And so that ad we actually did pull. Persuading retailers to stock Sega was a bigger problem. Nintendo held enormous sway, and retailers felt they couldn't afford to poke the bear. Visiting Walmart corporate headquarters in Arkansas, Kalinske and his colleague, Shinobu Toyota, were turned down flat. As Blake Harris describes it, that's when they decided to channel some of the scrappiness that had characterized their famous hedgehog. When Tom and Shinobu left the headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas, they were uh, flustered, but then uh, Shinobu noticed across the street there was a for rent sign in a mall area. And Tom and Shinobu had the idea to open up a Sega Genesis store where they didn't actually sell anything, but they invited customers to come in all day and play the Genesis for free. And not only that, they pretty much bought up every billboard in Bentonville, Arkansas, and they turned Bentonville into Segaville to the point where dozens of people were going into the flagship Walmart in Bentonville every day and saying, where can I get a Sega Genesis? And you couldn't because they didn't sell it. And so after a few months of this kind of strategy, which was amplified with putting seat, you know, getting Sega seat cushions at the University of Arkansas football games and basically continuing to just dominate Bentonville with Sega stuff, you know, eventually the executives at Walmart called Tom to say, we raised the white flag, we will carry your products. By 1994, Sega climbed to a 55% share of the video game market up from 2% during Kalinske's tenure. And the secret to creating a company with that kind of success, something that we see over and over again in any company that thrives on innovation, giving employees permission to fail. Tom Kalinske. At Sega, our corporate culture was very free and loose and creative, and we, we celebrated failure. I know this sounds strange, but we did. We used to have the um, Golden Chicken Award, which was a big rubber chicken, and we'd, uh, we'd, we'd hang it over the cubicle of the winner of that that month uh, and, the, and also gave him $100 because the, the Golden Chicken Award was for the guy or gal who had a, a really good idea, but it just didn't work. <laughs> so we gave him the Golden Chicken Award. And, and that kind of stuff you know, inspired a lot of... Uh, a lot of laughter in the company. But like all great parties, at some point it has to end. And the end of the reign of Sega can be blamed on a missed opportunity that created an incredibly powerful new player in the market. 
We were very friendly with Sony. Sony approached us to learn how to make software. They had acquired a studio in Santa Monica, and they really didn't know how to make video game software. And so our head of R&D, Joe Miller, sent a couple guys down there to help them learn how to make video games. And sometime during that, we had a conversation where instead of each of us making a hardware system, why don't we have a joint hardware system? Whether you call it the Sony Sega system or the Sega Sony system, who cares? You never make money on hardware. You make all your money on software. So instead of having competing hardware systems, let's have one. And we'll each benefit from the software that we produce and, and sell for it. I thought this was a great idea. I mean, it was a slam dunk deal, in my opinion, because we at Sega were so much better at creating great software than they were at that time. So we went to Japan together and met with senior Sony management. And senior Sony management said, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. We went over to Sega, and Nakayama-san did not like the idea. He, he thought that uh, Sony would never be successful on their own, so why should we help them to the degree that this would require us to help them? Well, to me at the time, it was obvious. It clearly was not obvious to, uh, to Nakayama-san or others in, in Sega. So the deal was killed. And I have actually always blamed myself for not being persuasive enough to get that done because I still, to this day, think that would have been really great for both companies and would have been better for the video game industry in its entirety. Instead, Sony decided to go it alone and developed the PlayStation. And Sega saw its market share dwindle in an increasingly crowded market. Meanwhile, another player emerged. After years of simply dabbling in video game software, Microsoft launched its first piece of video game hardware, the Xbox, mobilizing a vast online community for worldwide multiplayer gamers. So began a contest for video game dominance not unlike a game of Pong. The closest you might come to seeing what a $100 billion industry looks like is to walk around here at E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo. It's a video gaming answer to the Detroit Auto Show, a place to glimpse what's coming, what's possible, and where the giants are placing their bets. Xbox with its Scorpio, PlayStation with virtual reality. Nintendo will build on the launch of its Switch. But for all the platform wars, no one in the video game industry can ignore its highest axiom. The name of the game is the game. In other words, success or failure hinges on the popularity of the games themselves, a lesson rooted in Atari founder Nolan Bushnell's arcade philosophy and underlined in bold with the stratospheric success of titles such as Grand Theft Auto V. And if Bushnell has his way, the next big disruption in video games might just seem a little familiar. We have Pong in virtual reality right now, in which you're the battle. And so if you imagine that it's a two-player game, the other person is, uh, is about 12 feet away from you. But in the virtual reality, it looks like you're, you know, probably 30 feet apart. And uh, you're running back and forth, being the paddle. 
and the ball is going back and forth between you. It's, it's, it's actually a lot of fun. Today's video game industry draws its strength from millennials, a generation of digital gaming natives who grew up with video games and who populate its armies of content creators. For millennials, video games have truly gone mainstream and now include players from all walks of life in ways never seen before. The rise of video gaming is especially intriguing to marketers, for whom millennials represent a huge, but increasingly hard-to-access, demographic. Turning from conventional mass media, they have disappeared into the fast-growing selection of new media channels, including video games themselves. Some reports measure today's in-game ad spending in the tens of billions of dollars. As Nolan Bushnell would tell you, that's a lot of quarters. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. If you want to find out more about how gaming is making its way into the business world, think virtual reality, be sure to visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers 4. That's Trailblazers, then the number 4. And next episode we'll be looking at the increasingly disruptable world of newspapers, an industry struggling to survive in a world of shrinking budgets and rampant online competition. And you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, please leave us a rating and review. We'd appreciate it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>